This morning's scripture comes from the Gospel of Mark, uh, verses 21 through 34. And he said to them, Is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand? For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And he said to them, Pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you, and still more will be added to you. For to the one who has, more will be given, and from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And he said, The kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself, first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle, because the harvest has come. And he said, What can we compare to the kingdom of God, or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which, when sown in the ground, is the smallest of all the seeds in the earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air of the air can make nests in its shade. With many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples, he explained everything. This is the word of God for the people of God. Let's pray before we jump into this. Heavenly Father, we do ask as we open your word to us this morning, it would be clear, it would be convicting, and it would be compelling. I pray that the truth of what you have done on our behalf through your son Jesus would spark our imagination, that your Holy Spirit would be here to grow our hearts in delight of you and praise of you. And that as we leave here today, you would strengthen us with the courage and the faith to move into the world on your behalf as your family and your people. We ask all these things in your name. Amen. All right. Well, we are marching through the book of Mark. And uh, today we finish up chapter 4. Before we jump into this, though, I um, just want to uh, talk about this great book I just read. Now, I think I mentioned this a few weeks ago. It's called Unbroken, and it's about Louis Zamperini, who lived this incredible life. Now, since the, I mentioned it, I finished it, and I actually got to my favorite part towards the end. Um, Louis was a, an Olympic athlete. He um, flew on B-24 bombers in World War II. His plane went down in the, in the Pacific Ocean, and after, like, I don't know, a month of being out there um, surviving on this raft where he literally would kill and eat the sharks who were circling the boat trying to eat him. Okay, he was like, if they're trying to eat me, I might as well eat them. And then he started hunting sharks off his raft. Wild man. Of all people, um, he gets, or of, of all things, he gets picked up by Japanese troops and put into a POW camp in Japan. Now, he was there for two years and he endured awful, awful things. And right when he was about to break, when he was, you know, at the end of his rope, the only thing that he had put his hope in happened, and America won the war, and Japan surrendered, and he was free. He was no longer a prisoner of war at this point. Um, And to me, that moment and the following couple weeks was one of the most fascinating parts of this guy's story, of his whole life. I mean, a fascinating life. But this is one of the most fascinating parts because Zamperini, along with the other POWs in the camp, um, in that moment, a a power transfer occurred, right? I mean, at one point, they were under the reign of Japan. And in an instance, they were put under the reign and under the power 
of the United States. So their identity switched from being prisoners to being free in an instant, the moment those papers were signed. But it took a couple weeks for the Americans to actually get boats into over to Japan and planes and to get trains to get them out of these camps. And so they had these kind of two, three weeks where they lived in this really strange overlap of of um, powers, okay? So technically, they were reclaimed citizens of the United States. They were now under the authority and the power of America, but most of their life was actually still the same, okay? So they still lived in the POW camp. They still lived alongside the guards. Uh, the guards didn't leave. It was wild. I mean, they kind of like stayed there and continued to eat meals together and like hung out together with the very guards that were keeping them prisoners for two years. Um, they were still vastly malnourished. They still weren't home, but they were free and they knew how things were going to turn out. Okay. So they found themselves in, in the sort of messy middle of these two overlapping eras. Um, they knew they would be safe They looked forward to the full experience of salvation from their camp, but they still lived uh, where they had lived for the last two years. In fact, American pilots would fly over the camp and drop these huge pallets of food and supplies and medicine. It was basically like advanced gifts of this coming power were being dropped into their present reality. They weren't there yet, but they were receiving the gifts of their future freedom even now in their experience. I mean, what a fascinating time to be stuck in between these two eras, these two powers, these two nations. They were awaiting full salvation of the new one, but they were still largely experiencing the reality of the old one. They were reclaimed citizens of a new country, but they were still living in the old country. All right? This is actually exactly the way the Bible describes our experience in this world. Uh, This is Palm Sunday, and it's the beginning of Holy Week. Like we've said, it's the highest week in the Christian calendar. This Sunday begins the final week of Jesus's life, and this is the week that we look back on as Christians as the turning point in history, the turning point in our own story. This is when a new king it, uh, it declares, is enthroned, and there's a transfer of kingdoms, right? The, the old era of death and sin is over, and the new era of life and hope and salvation is um, established. This is the week when Jesus arrived in Jerusalem. He showed up on a donkey, a symbol of a king in the ancient world, to the shouts and the, um, and the cheers of the crowd. But then by Friday... Uh, that crowd was also crying for his crucifixion. And then by Sunday morning, a miracle so profound had, and world-changing had occurred that nothing will ever be the same again. A new superpower was established, so to speak. The reign of death and sin and fear was over, and Jesus' reign of resurrection life had begun. And yet... Even thousands of years after that event, after Jesus has been established as king over all things, our experience in this world remains largely the same, doesn't it? We still live in the old country. We still live with sin. We still live with fear and darkness and even death. Now, there there are signs of that new kingdom 
that we can experience in this world. They're sort of advanced gifts that, that God will bring in and airdrop into our life and, and sort of stat, like give us signs and guarantees that his country really is true and we really are heading that way. But for now, we kind of live in this messy overlap of ages, don't we? In between two powers. And our passage this morning is perfect for Palm Sunday. In this passage, Jesus tells us what the signs of his kingdom, of his coming kingdom, look like uh, while we live in the messy middle of history. This is a passage about Jesus arriving in our world, and he tells us this is what the kingdom of heaven is like. The kingdom of heaven is like a light. The kingdom of heaven is like a seed. And keep your eye out for these things, okay? They're, they're advanced signs. They're advanced gifts of what my full country, of what heaven will be like. This, these are the signs of the kingdom of God that declare my present victory and my future kingdom. And this is what Jesus tells us in these three short parables. Three simple images, three snapshots of what the arrival of King Jesus looks like in this world. What should we expect to look for? What should we keep our eyes out for if the promise of Jesus as king really is true? Here are three things, okay? Uh, We should keep our eyes out for his clarifying light. We should keep our eyes out for the certain fruit that comes from his promises. And we should keep our eyes out for the comprehensive hope that he offers the world. All right, three snapshots, three pictures of Jesus' kingdom entering our present world. So that's where we're heading this morning. First, Jesus brings clarifying light. Verse 21, we read that Jesus said to them, is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand? I mean, it's such a silly question, he doesn't even bother answering it, right? He just kind of moves on. I mean, of course not. The whole point of a lamp, the whole purpose of light is not to be hidden, but to be let loose, to to clarify, to reveal, to expose what was in a previously dark room. He doesn't even wait for the answer. Instead, he goes on and he says, nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, and nor is anything secret except to come to light. In other words, my light, uh, the light of my kingdom will shine in the darkness of this world. It's one of the signs that my kingdom is here and my kingdom is present. And the truth is, I mean, we do live in a dark world, don't we? Um, even this past week, um, the Austin City bomber is just the latest headline in a long line and a long series of senseless violence and murder that our country and the world, frankly, um, has just come to expect. It's just part of the world we live in, and it's dark. Uh, 50 years after the civil rights movement, uh, racism is alive and well in our world today, and not just in demonstrations in Richmond, Virginia, but I would argue in this valley, in our hearts, and even systematically um, in our world. 2017 might very well be remembered, well, it's going to be remembered as a lot of things, okay? But 2017 might be remembered as the year that sexual abuse scandals were revealed and made known to the public. It seemed like every week there was another high-profile example um, in the news. It's dark out there, and we need the light of Jesus to come and shine brightly in our dark world, to expose 
the injustice and the sin that's going on to reveal and shine in our dark world. But here's the thing. It's not just dark out there. It's also dark in here. G.K. Chesterton was a British author in the early 1900s, and one day he was asked by a London newspaper to respond, along with a lot of other leading intellectuals of his day, uh, to this question. What's the main problem with the world? In other words, this this paper wanted him to to answer the question, why is it so dark? And uh, the paper planned to print the various responses of these intellectuals, these thinkers in England, to that question. And Chesterton's answer was by far the shortest. So to the question, what's the main problem with this world? He wrote this note back to the newspaper. Uh, Dear sirs, I am. Yours truly, G.K. Chesterton. Right? He understood something about the world. It's tempting to think the main problems with the world are out there, right? That it's economic disparity or racial injustice, too many guns, not enough guns, blue, red, whatever. And if the right policy of education or the right policy of you know, economic um, uh, initiatives were put in place, that we'd be able to push back the darkness, it won't. Because the darkness is in here, just like it's out there. And we all carry it with us in our hearts. And so one of the signs of Jesus' coming kingdom in this world, one of the ways we know he's on the move, one of the ways that we know he's at work, is that his light begins to shine, not only in the world, but in our own hearts, right? He begins to reveal, and he begins to expose some of the ickiness, some of the yuckiness that is in there. One of the signs that he's at work is a growing conviction of sin in our own life. His light shines into our hearts and our guilt and our shame and our um, darkness is exposed. It's seen for what it is. Now, granted, this can be scary and this can be uncomfortable, but as a citizen of his kingdom, as a follower of Jesus, I want to I propose that this is actually a beautiful and lovely thing. Okay? To, to be convicted of sin, to be shown sort of how deep and gnarly it can get in there. Um, <clears throat> the reason each week when we say, when we do our confession of sin and hear our assurance of pardon, we, we, we say this every week. We don't bring these sins and these needs and these failings to God with our head um, hung low and, and a feeling of shame or uncertainty or fear. We do this knowing exactly how God is going to respond when our sin is exposed. He does not respond with judgment. He always responds to his people's confession and repentance with grace, with an outpouring of healing love, right? When, he, when the light of his truth shines in our life, it's, it's not a light of a judge. It's the light of a doctor who's trying to get in and expose and heal all the disease that is in our life. He will do this. He will shine his light in our lives, and he does it not to harm us, but to heal us, to bring life, and to to push back the darkness in this world. How does the king of all creation vanquish the darkness? How does he go about healing the darkness of our own hearts and the world? Well, the answer to that question is the most unique thing about Christianity. It's, it's the thing that sets Christianity apart 
from every other um, answer to the problem of our dark world. How does Jesus address the darkness of this world? Well, he doesn't expose everything that's wrong with it just to crush it, right? He doesn't expose what's wrong with us just to destroy us. This is what he does. Unlike every other king, when Jesus exposes the rebellion in his country, he doesn't crush the rebellers. Instead, he chooses to be crushed on their behalf, right? Jesus takes the darkness onto himself. He's actually destroyed by it. I mean, at the end of this week, on Friday, when we celebrate the fact that Jesus was killed on a cross, we read this in the Bible, that from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. I mean, in his moments of coronation, when Jesus became king over all things, when he was... um, when he was held up and glorified, in that moment, he took on all the darkness of our world. He took on all the darkness of our own lives. And in his resurrection, he defeated that darkness in a more comprehensive way than anyone can ever defeat anything. Okay, Because Jesus now, he reigns as a human king in heaven, but in a place where darkness and sin can no longer touch him, and he has paved the way for all of his people to join him there. Right? He, he has opened the doors wide of heaven and said, I've created the path. Follow me into heaven. You are citizens of this new country where darkness will never reign and where it will never even exist in our hearts. It's this reason that John in 1 John writes, If we walk in the light as he is in the light, We have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. See, the light of Jesus doesn't only expose what's wrong with the world. He actually cleanses what's wrong with the world with his light. He heals it, and he's the only one who can do that. Everybody else can shine a light and show what's wrong. Jesus can shine a light and fix what's wrong, right? That's the unique offer of his kingdom and his gospel in the world. So conviction of sin, that feeling that you're being exposed as a fraud or you're being exposed as a sinner, we don't like that feeling. We run from that feeling. I'm saying, and I'm not saying, the Bible is saying, Jesus is saying, embrace that, okay? Enjoy repentance. Repent with a happy heart because as you bring your sin into his light, you don't just get exposed, you get healed, That's where the action happens, because he always responds to our hearts with grace. When the kingdom is near, Jesus will bring his clarifying light. It's one of the signs, one of the advanced gifts of his coming kingdom. Here's another one. He brings certain fruit. Verse 26, we read that the kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day. The seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself, first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain of the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts it in the sickle because the harvest has come. We'll spend a little less time on this snapshot uh, because, frankly, it covers a lot of the ground we did last week when we looked at uh, the parable of the sower. Uh, But here again, Jesus compares his work in the world to a seed planted in the ground. And what I love about this farmer who scatters his seed is that he goes out, he puts in his work, 
And then he goes, and he goes to sleep, doesn't he? He takes a long nap after he's done his part scattering the seed. I mean, the seed of the gospel, the, the seed of God's word, has power in and of its own that is at work in the world, whether this man is out there watching it in the ground and like calculating its PhD all the time, P, pH levels, I didn't mean PhD, that doesn't make any sense. His pH levels, um, whether he's a kind of sitting there watching it all the time or whether he's you know, racked out in his bed asleep in a four-hour nap, the gospel, the word is in the ground. It's doing its work no matter what, okay? Um, he does his duty as a farmer. He's faithful. He scatters the word. Let's even say he does it boldly and with great zeal. He does it thoughtfully and winsomely. He extends the gift of this word of God, scatters it out into the world, and then he goes and takes a long nap, right? Because this man understands that, uh, that when God's word is at work, he doesn't have to be at work all the time, okay? It's even great. In verse 27, he says, I don't even really know how it works, right? I planted this seed. It's going to grow on its own. I know not how. This is what this man understands, that the word of God does the work of God, okay? The prophet Isaiah actually told us this in the Old Testament a thousand years before. In Isaiah 55, he wrote, For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty. It'll, it shall accomplish that which I purpose, and it shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. I mean, Jesus may have been commenting on that very verse from Isaiah 55. One of God's signs, one of the signs that Jesus is on the move that he's at work in our world and in our lives, one of the advanced gifts that he sends us from heaven in the country that we still live in is his living and active word, okay? The Bible, this thing, this old book, this one, that we have all, all have access to, that we'll give away to you for free if you don't have one. I have 15 of them sitting on my shelf in my office. You can have any one of them you want. Um, this book in it is filled with the promises of God's word, the promises of his gospel, and there is power in it. There's an objective power in God's word. Um, It is sufficient. We don't have to add anything to it to make it work, right? We can go take a long nap, and God's word is still going to be at work in this world. It's tempting to think that Jesus is um, truly at work in this world and and, and in our lives um, it's tempting to add things to the word, is what I'm trying to say. It's tempting to, to say, yeah, uh, the word's important, but we also need to have a, a, a perfectly articulated doctrine. We need to believe all the exact right things, and then it's really going to take off. Then the fruit of the kingdom will really see it. Or, yeah, we have God's word, but, man, then we need to really get out there and, and do all the right things and make the right moves and set up the right committees and build the right budgets, and, and then we'll really see the fruit of the gospel. Or maybe we're tempted to think, yeah, we have the word, but we also need to like feel the right way about it, right? Sort of conjure up the right emotional reaction to God's word. And then we're really going to see the fruit of God's kingdom. And Jesus insists, no, you can pretty much go take a nap. And my word is going to be at work in this world. There is a power living and active in the promises that we find 
here, the simplicity of it, can actually be pretty offensive. Okay? Um, we'll be tempted to find supplements to add to it, but one of the promises uh, of this parable is that the word of God is at work, even in this dusty old book. It's pretty wild. When King Jesus is on the move, when he's arriving in your life, one of the signs of it is that the word will be open, it'll be taught, it'll be proclaimed, it'll be meditated on, it'll be prayed about, it'll be memorized, and most of all, it'll be held high. Okay? This is the kind of church we are committed to being. We are going to be a, a, a Bible open, looking at God's word, releasing the word of God to do its work kind of church. Because Jesus says that's one of the signs of his kingdom. That's where the action's at. All right? Last one. Jesus uh, is, uh, is seen. He, he's at work. The signs of his kingdom are here uh, in conviction of sin and forgiveness, in his word um, and, the, and the fruit that is guaranteed to come from it. And finally, um, we read here that Jesus brings a comprehensive hope to the world. Mark 4.30 through 32, says, With what can we compare the kingdom of God? What parable shall we use for it? It's like a grain of mustard seed, which when, sno- which when sown on the ground is the smallest of all the seeds on the earth. Yet when it's sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. It's a beautiful image. And the image is that from the smallest thing, can grow the greatest gift for the world. Um, This snapshot emphasizes how little and uh, even simple and mundane the gospel can sound and feel, but how much power and hope it has for the global kingdom that God is bringing. Jesus, again, is drawing this imagery from the Old Testament. A number of times in the Old Testament, this image of of birds resting in the branches is used to represent that God is actually drawing in people from around the world. Every tongue, nation, tribe, place, valley will be gathered into God's global family. In Ezekiel 31, we read, All the birds of the heavens made their nests in its bows. Under its branches, all the beasts of the field gave birth to their young, and under its shadow lived all the great nations. See, Jesus is planting a tree that will bring life to the nations, to to the entire world. Uh, The kingdom of God is a promise that started so small. I mean, just a word of promise to one man named Abraham in the Old Testament, and that one man, out of him, grew a global family of millions and millions of people who followed Jesus from every nook and cranny of this world. So what's another sign that God's kingdom is here? What's another sign, advanced gift from this future country that we know God's at work? It's that people throughout the world and throughout this valley are regularly joining the family of God. They're they're receiving the gifts and the promises that come to us through Jesus. Again, here at Grace, we're going to expect conversions. Okay, We're going to expect that when the word is held high and when God's people are faithfully resting in his promises and extending those gifts to their neighbors, people are going to come and they're going to trust Jesus with their lives, right? They're going to they're commit themselves to their Lord and Savior and the family of God is going to grow. We're going to pray for it. We're going to look for it. 
we're going to expect it because God says one of the ways I'm at work is I'm adding people to my family constantly. And this, this thing that started so small is going to grow into a tree that feeds and cares for the nations of this world. These three stories offer three snapshots of what it looks like when Jesus' kingdom is arriving in your life and in the world and in our church. He brings conviction and salvation. He brings fruit and growth. He brings hope for the world. They're all a little bit different, but the thing they all have in common is that they look super fragile and small right now. One of the commentators I read this week said, a more banal comparison could not be imagined. The kingdom of God should be likened to something grand and glorious, to shimmering mountain peaks, crimson sunsets, the opulence um, of, uh, of a gladiator. But Jesus likens it to seeds. The paradox of the gospel, the scandal of the incarnation, is disguised in such commonplace things. See, the kingdom can look so commonplace. It's so paradoxical. Jesus has won. He reigns as king even now, and yet we still find ourselves in the old country. We find ourselves on this side of heaven in a dark world filled with pain, filled with difficulty, filled with sin, and we stand in the messy middle, the overlap of these two eras, these two kingdoms. The kingdom is here now. God is at work in power, but it hasn't fully arrived either. And so knowing who is one, knowing King Jesus reigns, and knowing with certainty that he will come to complete what he started really does make all the difference. I mean, think of those men in that camp. Their experience totally changed the second they found out that they were under the reign of America again, okay? Now, their experience wasn't that different, but their outset, their mindset, their hope, their, their, um, their energy for the future totally changed in the moment they knew whose country they were living in. And they knew that one day they would go back home. And we know that one day we will go back home. I mean, listen to some of these promises. Let me, let's just wrap up. Because um, right now it's, it's hazy, it's unclear, it's small, it's little, it's hard to see the kingdom. But one day it is going to shine with clarity like the noonday sun. Unlike a light slowly being revealed from under a basket, one day we read, the night will be no more. They will need no light of a lamp or a sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and we will reign with him forever. We won't even need a sun, because we will be with Jesus, the light of the world, forever. And even though we're on this kind of partway started, not yet finished spiritual journey with Jesus, We also read, count it joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that testing your faith produces steadfastness. Steadfastness um, has its full effect that you might be what? Perfect and complete, not lacking anything. Never do I feel perfect and complete, not lacking anything. We're always partway done, partway down the road with Jesus, but one day we will be. One day we will be complete. Paul writes in Philippians 1, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. This is the promise of the kingdom in these parables. We're not there yet, but his kingdom is coming to us. And with it come all the promises that Jesus has secured for us. He sends us advanced gifts of the gospel 
keep your eyes out for them. Because there is a certain place that Jesus is taking his people, and we can bank on it. He will complete what he started. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for coming into our world um, and enduring everything that um, we have to endure and more. You took on the darkness of this place and the darkness of sin so that when you reigned as king in a resurrected life, all of that might be left behind. You defeated sin and death and darkness so that we could reign with you forever in a perfect country, in a perfect home. I pray that you keep that vision of your kingdom before us at all times, that we don't forget whose citizens we are. Even though we live in this country for now, and even though it's not always clear, Jesus, thank you for the gifts that you send us from heaven that show us how certain your promises really are. Help us see them. Help us trust you. Help us take great delight in all you've given us. We ask these things in your name. Amen. that we believe using the words of the Apostles' Creed. Christian, what do you believe? I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and he descended into hell. And the third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, 
the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. You may be seated. All right, we come now to the Lord's table, which is the family meal for the people of God. If you put your hope and trust and faith in Jesus alone for salvation, this table has been set for you. Uh, And just like the signs of the kingdom that Jesus has uh, pointed out to us this morning in his parables, these are signs of his coming kingdom. Right now they look small, right? Little little thing of wine, little thing of bread. Uh, But what they are are advanced gifts that guarantee and, and are a sign and a taste of the feast that we will have with Jesus in heaven. These are signs of our certain future country uh, that our King Jesus has established for us. So as we eat them, as we drink them, they're not just what they are. It, it's spiritual nourishment for the journey that we're on as we're in the messy middle of history right now. Here is a down payment on what Jesus has done for us and promises us in full one day in the future. On the night in which he was betrayed, Jesus took bread and he broke it. He said, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Drink of it. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim my death until I come again right? You, you enjoy the gifts until my country and, and my kingdom fully arrives. Jesus, thank you for these gifts. Thank you that you have established a kingdom of life and you've invited us into it. Help us enjoy these and may they nourish our faith this morning. We ask these things in your name. Amen.